Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and in this episode three of season three, we're joined by Joanna Turner from asset management company, Canada Life Investments. Now, I met Joanna online during lockdown. No, not like that. I shared one of her Property Week articles on LinkedIn, which kicked off a big discussion, which she joined, and now here we are. In this episode, you're going to hear how Canada Life is evolving their assets for hybrid working. Joanna says the future of work doesn't mean reduced demand for commercial real estate. Working from home and going to the office will go hand in hand. But she says demand for space as a service and flexibility will grow faster as we shift to hybrid working. So every major landlord has to become space as a service minded. Joanna believes conventional real estate managers should partner with experienced space as a service operators to meet customer demand. And of course, as the theme of the season is the valuation topic, we get into that discussion with some feedback for the valuer community. And to lenders, Joanna says they need to evolve their criteria to recognize the growth in demand for space as a service. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at workbold.co. Now, let's get this episode started. Welcome back to the Workbold podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm joined by Joanna Turner, head of property research at Canada Life Investments, an asset management company which traces its beginning way back to 1847 and currently manages 37 billion pounds of assets in the United Kingdom. The firm just sold one of their London assets, which was acquired in 2014, the Super Union Building in Farringdon, for 29.6 million pounds to Hampshire County Council. In Joanna's role, she's responsible for managing research and strategy, which includes forecasts, thought leadership, house views, quarterly reporting, and writing regular research content. Joanna has 25 years' experience in property research and strategy at a global European and UK level. Prior to Canada Life, she worked as an associate director in DTZ's global forecasting and research team and has gained experience at major global property fund managers such as AXA Real Estate, LaSalle Investment Management, and Invesco, as well as Cushman & Wakefield's European research team. Joanna holds a master's in real estate investment from Cass Business School, City University London, and a bachelor's honors from Manchester University. She also speaks Spanish, German, French, as well as her native English. But don't worry, we've convinced her to speak English today. She's a committee member of the <laughs> Society of Property Researchers, organizing regular industry events, and is a member of the Investment Property Forum. She writes regular blogs on behalf of Canada Life Investments and has had articles published in major property journals such as IPE Real Estate Assets, Property Week, and Euro Property. She's passionate about ESG and climate change, diversity and inclusion in the real estate sector. Welcome to the Work Bold podcast, Joanna. Hi, Caleb. Thank you. Yes, I'm delighted to join you. Well, we really appreciate it. And thank you for agreeing to speak English with us today. Oh, that's no problem. Como estas? I should start out with bien, gracias. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so let me stop that before I embarrass myself. Um, so... So Joanna and I met recently because she had an article in Property Week, and which I shared on with some commentary on my LinkedIn, and we'll come on to that in a bit. But um, just to start kicking it off and, and paint a picture, Joanna, can you give a profile of the assets that you that Canada Life invests in? Yes, thanks, Caleb. 
Um, as you said, we manage about um, 38 billion of sort of multi-assets in the UK, of which far, about 5 billion is um, invested in property. Now, half of that is direct property. The other half is in the form of commercial real estate mortgages. So on the direct property side, We've got several property funds and they're invested both for our internal insurance business, but also for external institutional clients as well to invest in. These funds contain diversified portfolios of assets um, and they're invested across all the, the major property types of office, retail, industrial predominantly. But also we have some mixed use and some what we class as alternative sectors, you know, which um, which it could be anything other than the three uh, major sectors. So in terms of geography, our assets are pretty well diversified around the whole country, um, although we do have quite a significant proportion invested in London, the southeast, and also the major regional cities. I think that kind of sums it up. That is a good summary. And and <laughs> and the comp the firm is the Canada Life uh, is is not. You're not just a fund manager, you actually have an in-house asset management team, is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, before we went into lockdown, I, I work quite closely myself with both of those teams. So um, both the fund management team and the asset management team work quite closely together. They've got a very, very hands-on approach, I'd say, which uh, not all sort of property fund managers have. And we believe that our ability to sort of manage, you know, this asset asset management function in-house generates significant added value, I'd say. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned lockdown. I, I want to sort of start with something a little slight, maybe slightly controversial. Many people in, in our sector, in our industry, in commercial real estate, believe working from home that we're doing right now is unproductive um, or is a temporary measure and eventually everyone's going to come back into the office. But you have a slightly different view. Can you sort of talk about what you believe? <laughs> yes. I actually think that um, I think there's been a lot of myths around this subject recently, um, not just, you know, in the property industry, but also what's been reported in the media, et cetera. And, you know, there's a wide uh, variety of views depending on, you know, um, who, you know, who different people represent and which organisation. So actually, I've heard everything from how it could be the death of the office, which is what people were sort of saying right at the start of lockdown because of the effectiveness of home working, right through to, you know, what you said, that how we'll all eventually go back to the office and just return to how we how we were. So um, I, I think that before this pandemic, Maybe some people in the property industry thought that working from home was unproductive because, you know, actually only around 5% of the workforce did work from home at the time. So we didn't have much experience of it, I guess. But since, you know, the vast majority of um, office workers have now been, if you like, forced to work from home, uh, which is, you know, the, the, really it's the greatest natural workplace experiment we've we've ever had, you know. So I think we've discovered that we can be productive and happy working from home. And I think a lot of people have probably been surprised by that. But, you know, not everyone. So it depends on people's personal circumstances and it depends on your home setup. So, you know, if you're sitting in, you're sitting at home in a shared flat, you know, on a laptop, sitting in your bedroom, it's not quite the same as someone living in, you know, a country mansion, you know, in the Shire. So, you know, people have different experiences of that. 
But in general, I think there's been a huge change in mindset and attitudes in the property industry towards, you know, both working from home and perhaps being a bit more flexible about the way we work in general, really. And I think actually that this COVID situation has been a catalyst, really, to enable people, you know, to work from home productively, provided that, you know, we have the right technology. Well, absolutely. And, and I've, I'm, everybody that knows me knows I'm a, I'm a big uh, believer that the future is flex or is flexible. And if I go back to that article that how we met in your Property Week article, you quoted a drawer poleg statement that um, company bosses shouldn't, shouldn't be asking, can my employee work remotely? They should be asking, if I reallocate 15,000 pounds or dollars a year to support my team members' productivity, could they produce better work without spending every day in the office? And uh, he goes on to say that for millions of employees, the answers are resounding yes. So if that's the case, are you expecting a reduction in demand for your assets? Well, the short answer is no, we're not. But however, I'll go on to sort of explain, you know, my thought processes behind all this. Um, I think in general, the, situ the situation regarding future workspace demand is it's quite complex and it's also quite fluid. So it's also very personal to the individual occupier. So, you know, if, if you're a sort of traditional corporate, let's say, you know, their future real estate needs are going to be shaped by, you know, their legacy, their business culture, their attitudes towards real estate, you know, their financial health, you know, which is a big factor in this pandemic and also, you know, the sector in which they operate. So there's a lot of factors involved in, you know, which shape demand going forward. And so I think we have to think about the dynamics affecting future demand for offices. It's not, you know, it's not a linear journey to some kind of end destination, you know, in property terms. But, you know, there's lots of things to think about. So I think it's rather than being linear, it's kind of multidirectional. So um, I think, you know, lots of occupiers are looking at, you know, how they're going to occupy space in the future. But I think we're going to have lots of twists and turns along the way from the occupier's point of view. Now, from the landlord's point of view, I think that, I mean, there, there are certain stages to this, this, this whole thing as well. So I think our first priority as a landlord in this kind of, if you like, pre-vaccine stage of the pandemic you know, is to ensure the health and safety of our tenants in our assets, you know, uh, so that they feel comfortable to return, you know, and sort of both physically and ment mentally that, you know, that, that, that they feel safe, actually. So um, once and assuming we do get a vaccine, um, you know, when we do sort of return to the office, once again, I think we've got, you know, we have a diverse range of tenants and they've all got different needs and requirements from the real estate and the space that they occupy. So what I can say to you is our asset management teams have been engaging constantly throughout the lockdown with our tenants to make sure that they are happy to work with them and, to, you know, to provide solutions for their changing space requirements. So, I mean, as I said, I think a lot of companies are using this time in lockdown away from the office to sort of rethink the way that they want to work, you know, post-pandemic over the longer term. And I, I think it's really important not to, you know, produce knee-jerk reactions, say, oh, God, you know, this is the death of the office, or we don't need any office space, or we'll work from home. So I think, you know, this is going to take time to work through. So over the next couple of years, you know, we have to think about all these things. You know, another thing we have to think about is whether, 
you know, how we create social distancing in the office and whether that's going to be a short term thing or whether it's going to be a long term thing. And, you know, so there's all those kinds of things, you know, there's this big ongoing um, discussion at the moment in the industry about densification, you know, like sure. um, cramming people into, into you know, uh, desks and sort of work stations and, and will that unbundle, you know, are we, because of social distancing, we're therefore arguably going to need more space because we're, you know, each person's going to need more space around them. Some people are arguing that's a short-term thing and that's not going to last. Others are saying the opposite. But anyway, so I think, you know, as an industry, we, you know, we've got to avoid making all these sweeping generalizations about the future of office demand. And I think the key for us as a professional landlord is we have to be as flexible and adaptable as possible because things are so uncertain and we have to engage really closely with each individual tenant you know, to work on their individual requirements, which, which may well change throughout the process. So I know that's a very long way of saying things, but what I'm trying to say is I think broadly overall, we really aren't anticipating, an, you know, any shrinkage in demand over the next couple of years. But what I would say is we are expecting a, a flight to prime quality space and perhaps some of the lesser quality secondary space will, you know, will become more vacant. So that's how I see it unfolding in my eyes. Yeah, I can't say I disagree much with uh, with the way the, the the demand will go towards quality space. Um, I, I think we'll we'll see a, a, a shift towards quality space, which will be taken at a premium, and then some other companies will go towards your your lower cost. It'll be a quality or cost, but the middle ground um, will sort of fade away or or get repurposed in, in, in to one of those directions. I, I think, and yeah. um, you know, to to your to your point about um, Talking and engaging with your clients and understanding their needs, I think that's absolutely imperative for for every landlord, um, yeah. every every asset manager, and um, you know from a company to company basis, to subject to culture. Uh, but then even within the company, if 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 we democratize workplace choice and people can choose when and where they do their best work, um, if some people are in the office some days, a couple yeah. days a week, and, and at home or somewhere else a couple days mm -hmm. a week. Then um, I, I think the change of use of the office, uh, or there will be a, a change of use for what we know as the office. And um, in ten of of last season on the podcast, we we covered, we talked about how the traditional office is dead, but quote the office is not dead, meaning that we do need office environments to work from, but the use is going to change in. I think for the, for me, the densification topic is um, is a short term thing. I, I don't think we're going to mm. see a full reversal of the densification trend that we we've been seeing pre pandemic, but I don't think it will continue going deeper into that densification. But if we talk about the future and hybrid models, because I think the future is hybrid, where people are but working from home some days and working in the office some days. Mm -hmm. How how does that hybrid model? look to you as an asset manager from your perspective when people still need to connect with each other regardless of whether they're in the office and they're not yeah i i you know i agree with you that i think that definitely the sort of hybrid model approach is uh, going to be the way forward i certainly uh, you may say i'm biased but i mean it it's absolutely true the office uh, is certainly not dead but you're absolutely right the traditional office is dead so, you know, I think, as I said, I think there are various stages, as you mentioned, with some people working in the office 
uh, part of the time working from home, um, you know, some of the time as well. So it's all about managing that, isn't it? And, and, you know, as landlords, you know, we have to think the best way of managing all of that. So I think, you know, in different phases, you know, that uh, our first, as I said, our first phase as a landlord is to ensure, you know, the health and safety of all of, um, you know, uh, our tenants and also sort of individual staff. But going forward, I think that working from home and as I mentioned in the Property Week article, you know, working from home and going to the office go hand in hand. So, you know, we have to, as landlords, be proactive about that. But I think, you know, once again, you, you can't make sort of generic sweeping statements. I mean, I would say that, you know, people will really only want to come to the office and make that effort to commute to the city centres if they feel, you know, it's rewarding and worth the commute, you know. So I absolutely agree that the role of the office will change from a place just to come and do work to, you know, a place to meet and inspire others, socialise with your colleagues, you know, collaborate, meet external clients and also have face-to-face -face meetings, which are, you know, not on Zoom or Teams, you know. Um, so, you know, there's, I think the other thing that comes into that is having work spaces which actually sort of, you know, support and enhance the health and well-being of, of staff. That is a huge theme in the industry at the moment about, you know, well-being um, and things like this. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. Well, well-being, I think, was sort of um, a nice tick box exercise pre-pandemic. And there, was, <laughs> there were some forward leaning yeah. companies yeah. that were really taking it seriously. But I think this this whole pandemic um, has really brought well-being to the surface, which is which mm. I'm thankful for. And, you know, we think about the old days of coming to an office because that's where we had to go. And, and now yeah. if we don't have to go there, um, yeah. we, can, we can sort of do work anywhere and be productive in silos. But when we come back together, yeah. it's because we're going to be doing that. We're going to be having the innovative sessions and thinking, and we need to have yeah. sort of the human characteristics of empathy and collaboration that you can't necessarily get when you're not together. So um, I think you guys have taken this time to look at your assets and, and evolve to, to mm. future-proof them. Can you talk about what, you're, what you've been doing? You know, as, as landlords, we sort of have a duty of care to our tenants and also have to ensure that, you know, uh, they are coming back to office buildings, which incorporate, you know, uh, things to look after their own health and well-being. So um, we, we, we're currently undergoing a major project on extending an office asset in Watford. Uh, so we're extending the size of it from 30 to 40,000 square foot. It currently has a flexible space operating. There's a major tenant. But what, we, what we're doing is, and this is still in the planning stage, but we're, we, we're incorporating well-being aspects into the heart of that development. And we're, we're also trying to target the, the highest standard wellness uh, ratings and also in terms of sustainability as well, because we're trying to attract you know, the best tenants. Of course. Um, but even, you know, for our own assets, we're, while we're in this stage of lockdown, we're also currently undergoing a major programme to, they're calling it reimagine and transform the way we work as a company. Um, so this includes a major two and a half million pound refurbishment uh, programme, which is taking place at Canada Life's um, HQ, which is Canada Life Place, funnily enough, in Hertfordshire. Ah. Um, and that affects all 700 employees there. So, um, you know, as I said, 
while the premises are vacant during this lockdown period, you know, when all 700 employees are working from home, they're undergoing this uh, project. So I'll just give you sort of few uh, details of sure. that. So the objectives really are to sort of upgrade the office space, which is which was the first thing, and also the working environment um, to prepare the office for increased levels of flexible working. So, you know, that's a key component. Now, in order to, to do that, really, uh, the, the organisation conducted a major engagement sort of survey amongst all the staff and they ask, you know, obvious questions like um, how comfortable, how happy are you working from home? When you return to the office, do you want to go back full time, whatever? And, you know, most of the answers that came back were that staff, you know, did like working from home, but they didn't want to do it full time. They wanted that flexibility. So, you know, so they want to come in the office when they really need to be there, as we've discussed, you know, meeting, mm -hmm. meeting clients, meeting people or even socializing. And, you know, they want to work from home as well. So, so this project is all part of that. So I actually think that um, it, it's a pretty exciting project. You know, I mean, the, the company actually has really, really engaged with the staff and found out what they really want. And what they're trying to do is ensure that the final workplace design really is, you know, fit for purpose and meets, you know, employees sort of preferences and requirements, really. So as I said, I think it's really, really uh, ambitious. Uh, they, they, they have core components of the project, which are, People, IT and workplace, they are the, the three components that they're focusing on. And in terms of the workspace component, there's going to be team neighbourhoods in, you know, in the workspace. So um, they're going to have like collaborative open spaces. Um, they, they're not going to have any sort of normal kind of uh, no offices, uh, you know, no managers in offices. It's all collaborative open space. So it's not cellularized, but it's yeah. it's sort of an open plan. But then certain yeah. areas would be designated to teams, and they'll call them neighborhoods. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. You know, we sort of it, it's a major project. We hired a consultant for all this. You know, and th there's going to be actually few fixed desks because everyone's going to have their own uh, laptop. We already do, but you know that's going to enable that virtual working and you know coming into the office some days and the virtual working. And so it's all going to be set, designed around people, really, to enable that virtual and office working. I think that's the uh, aim. Yeah, as it should be. And, and yeah. I, think it's, I think it's great that as, as an asset manager, you're getting so close to the product, you're actually becoming your own customer um, to mm -hmm. understand you know, what your customers will need to, to be successful. And, and taking it a people approach is the, is, is the right approach, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. out, of, uh, out of curiosity, where, where does... Um, Looking ahead, where does space as a service? Uh, we're on a space as a service podcast, so I have to ask this question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Where does space as a service fit into your strategy going forward? Well, you know, we are a traditional commercial property landlord. You know, I've said that up front. So we're not actually space as a service specialists. So most of our tenants are on, you know, the traditional leases of five to 10 years. But however, I, I, believe and you know the company believes that every major landlord you know has to become space as a service minded really because you know you've got to be totally focused on providing that high level of service that your clients or your tenants you know demand and require and on top of which i know this is a different thing but they do go hand in hand you've got to be able to offer flexibility in terms of 
you know, the layout, the use of space, um, and you've got to kind of offer shorter term leases to some of the tenants require it, you know. So not every tenant does require it. I'd have to say, you know, like I would say that still the bulk of our tenants, um, you know, are, are still quite happy on these longer leases and, you know, the traditional leases. But, you know, um, but but there's a certain amount and it's definitely growing of tenants that do require it. So, you know, like you can't have your head in the sand. You've got to be proactive. And I, as I said, I think every landlord needs to be space as a service minded. So in terms of our strategy, I guess, you know, we offer it in two different ways, really. The first is, you know, is a we're a traditional landlord, and so we rent that space to either a serviced office or a flexible office, you know, operator, so they're our actual tenants. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, and they, of course, provide all the space on the flexible terms uh, with the additional services, et cetera, uh, to, their, to their tenants. Um, but, you know, on some of our office buildings in London and the major regional cities, uh, we provide, you know, short term, flexible, managed workspace to tenants. So we provide that, say, on a couple of floors in a traditional office building. Um, and that's offered as a fully integrated, all inclusive service on a shorter term uh, lease. And, and But that's actually taken care of by a specialist external you know, flexible manage workspace manager who we work with, and and you do you do that because you're a specialist in conventional leases and they're specialists in providing the flex space as a service. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting the what's the evolution that's happening in commercial real estate as space as a service demand is growing, and um, it you know we're not we're not at a point yet where space as a service is taking over. But it's, it's certainly growing massively, and um, I think I think there's a there's sort of a couple different customer profiles that are breaking down. There's there's these small businesses, entrepreneurs who are sort of the early adopters uh, of of our you know product and service. But then and then you have these fast growing companies um, who cannot predict their employee count, uh, their team member count over the next couple of years. So they need that flexibility. And then you have sort of the enterprise customer that uh, is is historically on traditional leases, and what it's interesting to me is that a lot of the transactions that are happening, uh, the enterprise occupier is now saying we we need we we don't need to put all of our team into a flex or a space as a service um, footprint, but we need to have that footprint in in the asset to access as and when we need to scale up and down. Um, so that's been interesting. I know that there's um there's there's some transactions that are taking place where three parties come to the table to make that work, but. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to go back to you said you had two strategies, one where you partner and the other where you do the traditional lease. There's yeah. been a lot of talk, you know, about asset owners moving to a partnership model with mm-hmm. the space as a service operator on sort of management agreements or joint ventures instead of the lease model. And that lease model sort of is starting to is beginning to be considered risky due to the SPVs involved and maybe mm-hmm. even some news on some some of them being yeah. popped. Lately, I'm not going to mention names, but um, <laughs> does, uh, does does Canada Life have a view on that? Yeah, I, um, you know, we never got involved in um, JVs uh, and partnership models with um, either co-working or space as a service operators ourselves, because I think we never really felt comfortable with that from a kind of risk management point of view. So that's probably why we tended to adopt the traditional landlord tenant sort of relationship. 
I know there's been a lot of, you know, press recently and um, a lot of hype about some of the fallouts and things like this. I mean, I would say that there are obviously several different types of operating models in the markets and, you know, and also ways for asset managers to, to get involved with space as a service operators. Um, I think the immediate concern amongst, you know, asset managers and certainly our point of view is that, you know, at the moment, because we're in the middle of this pandemic, we're in the middle of this recession, uh, there's a lot of concern about, you know, the level of underlying demand in these spaces. You know, if, if for instance, you can leave um, at a, you know, a month or even day's notice, you know, uh, there's a lot of concern about the vacancy, um, you know, amongst the kind of subtenants, if you like. And, you know, and, and I think also, you know, there's a lot of talk as well in the traditional property industry about uh, how some of these operators are managing um, social distancing, for instance, you know, because they tend to be more densely packed, you know, um, in their workstations and how they manage, you know, all these communal areas and things like that. So I think that's the immediate concern. So I think we're talking about, you know, a market that's currently obviously in a downturn. So I actually think that there's going to be a shakeout and consolidation amongst some of these co-working operators, you know. But I also think that will create new opportunities for, you know, for other operators that are willing to grasp it really and adapt to, I know this is a terrible cliche, but the new normal. So that I, I, I can see that ultimately over the longer term, this demand for space as a service but also for much more flexibility and this sort of thing. I think it's only going to grow because I think it is a big structural shift. So, um, for instance, you know, JLL had a report recently that, and they're predicting that flexible space demand is will continue to increase because of COVID. And, you know, and that 30% of all office space is going to be consumed flexibly by 2030 from only 5% now. But, you know, so as I said, I think there's going to be lots of ways for asset managers and landlords to get involved. And and I, I think I agree with you, actually, that I think that more and more of them are going to get involved either through management contract route with the specialist operator or, you know, or through JVs. Um, obviously, some of them, the bigger landlords like British Land, et cetera, they've got their own in-house management expertise and they've got their own brand haven't they story etc so but i think it's an opportunity for a landlord and an asset manager to sort of get involved in the space yeah i i think it goes back to what you were saying before you know what are you what is your expertise in and are you are you gonna as as an asset owner or manager are you going to commit to bringing that expertise in-house or are you going to partner with somebody to be able to facilitate yeah. that uh, and, and, and meet that demand. Um, I think in the short term, you're right. There's some practical things to consider around uh, social distancing and and even demand for people coming back in the office. But if yeah. we look if we look post COVID, um, the demand for for flexibility, the demand for um, service and, and excellent customer service yeah. um, is, is certainly going. I believe is going to be there. Um, mm -hmm. So I think. The demand for space as a service is only going to grow. Some some say that the pandemic has put an acceleration on that JLL stat you mentioned, and we yeah. might see um, either you know 30% of the overall office stack before 2030, or we might yeah. even see it go over 50% at some point. I think yeah. time will tell, and and I'm certainly uh, bullish on that. But um, there there's also a conversation around 
you know, building valuations for this type of space because we're not talking about long leases and forward-looking revenue with, yeah. with, with covenant strengths that are really strong. We're talking about a diverse range of, of, of customers on varying lease terms or license agreements. So yeah. I'm wondering, do, do you agree that the valuation methodologies that are used right now uh, should change to recognize revenue that's generated via these management agreements with space as a service operators? Woo, that's a really kind of, it's quite a complex question. Um, but I think, you know, as you said, for the value, you know, they use the RICS Red Book, they, um, you know, and they use the traditional investment method, you know, evaluation. And first and foremost, I suppose the valuers has to ask themselves, you know, what it, what is it that I'm actually being valued? And, you know, what's the basis or the purpose of this valuation? Is it for the investor? Is it the lender? You know, who is it? And then when you bring in all this, you know, all this extra revenue stuff as well, it kind of adds all those extra levels of complexity. So I, I actually think that, you know, the, the, there's a real challenge for the valuer because, you know, because I suppose they have to say to themselves, you know, if this, this building was vacant, would it be worth the same if it's a space as a service operator versus a traditional operator? Or, you know, does all that extra service and revenue actually add value to the asset? You know, so they, they're some of the um, things that they have to sort of consider. And also, as you rightly mentioned, you know, some of the covenants of you know the underlying um the tenants you know as well as some of the the new operators is 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 you know is not considered investment grade either so you know that's a real consideration for for the valuer and also you know the end investor etc so now, yeah I, I would i would challenge the industry to think about covenant strength um yeah i i understand 100 percent why it's important in in the old way of valuing buildings but looking yeah. ahead having a diverse mix of customers that range from startups to blue chip to enterprise everything yeah. all, all the above um then covenant strength especially when you bring flexibility into it is is to me less of a concern however um what is a Massive concern, I think, for asset managers is is the operator that they bring yeah. in and partner with because you want to yes. make sure. And because I think, like you said, there's going to be consolidation, and yeah. just like any time we have evolution, it's the survival of the fittest. And who, and, mm -hmm. and in my view, the the lease arbitrage model that we've had in the past was uh, is in this time of Corona is is very difficult, and yeah. there will be consolidation. So you know, I appreciate. Yeah. I appreciate your comments on that. I mean, the, the, the other thing I'd say is because of all this extra level of, um, you know, complexity, the operator would, would argue that, well, actually, because of, you know, the premium that we're actually charging and, you know, the premium that, um, that we're placing on service and revenue, you know, that, 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 that leads to a better sort of net uh, operating income. So what I'd say is the value is left with the job that, you know, unless they have the data and the transparency on that and the cash flows from the actual operator, they can't determine all of that in order to make their judgment. So this is actually a call from me, you know, to, to that part of the industry to say, if you want um, the valuation methodology to change and improve, you know, we as a landlord need better data from the actual operator on your individual cash flows and your accounts, you know, in order to do that. Sure. 
I, I think I think that's a very valid statement. And, um, and, and I'll just, um, if, if I can just toot my own horn for a moment here, um, yeah. I normally don't do this on the podcast, but, um, <laughs> but I think it's, it's a relevant statement because what, what management agreements and partnerships should be is transparent. And, yeah. you know, with our clients that we work with, the asset managers that we yeah. operate spaces of service for, yeah. we, we absolutely, it, it's, it's their asset, it's their revenue. Yeah. So we mm-hmm. work for them. So we, sh- we're yeah. very transparent and, and show mm-hmm what's happening. And I think from a, from a value perspective that, that gets extended to the, to whoever's valuing. Because if you think about, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to take it back off of me for a moment and talk about HB Revis. Okay. Mm-hmm. HB Revis here in, in London has, has an asset in Farringdon. Um, just under 50% of that asset is space as a service. Yeah. The other, it's in the other 50, the other, like just over 50% is unconventional leases. Now, mm-hmm. The the spaces of service operation is run by their it's an in-house brand, but it's run mm-hmm. by Hubhub. Now, yes. when HB Revis decides if they do in the future to sell that asset off, they can sell that with a and, and continue running and operating HB Revis or sorry, Hubhub within the asset, or the buyer can choose to bring in another operator mm-hmm. on that percentage of the asset yeah. that has spaces of service. Yeah. But Ultimately, th- there needs to be transparency around how that building is operating and generating that revenue in that forty whatever percent. Yeah. So, um, but but I think it's interesting in, in that that all ties together with that conversation about customers coming in and wanting access to that space. Mm-hmm. And so, when it comes to the valuers, the last question that, that I would add they need to be asking is what's what's the demand. Is yeah. there is there higher demand in that particular market for conventional leases, or mm-hmm. is there more demand for flexibility and and service? Yes, and you know you mentioned this fifty fifty kind of split. Um, although traditionally, I think that um, some lenders would not lend on a particular asset if you know if, if the building had more than twenty percent of you know right. flexible flexible operators or spaces of service. Uh, um, so, you know, that, that, that's otherwise it's considered non-investment grade. But actually, it sounds like from this conversation we're having that that needs to evolve and that needs to change because that's the way that the market is evolving. I mean, I agree with you 100 percent and I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> um, and <laughs> yeah. if, if you're if you're OK, uh, I, mean, I have a couple of quick fire questions, but I have one more yeah. like, serious question that I want to ask mm-hmm. you. And it's um, yeah. what, what are you most optimistic about as we look ahead into 2021? Oh, um, well, we, we, you know, we're still in the midst of this, you know, doom and gloom at the moment. But, you know, I actually think that once we get out of this pandemic, you know, we hopefully have the vaccine. That's the that's the first thing I'm looking forward to having so that we can all start to recover properly and, you know, behave as normal with some kind of normality. Um, so, you know, even though I think we're still living through the most difficult and personally challenging time that we've probably ever known any of us in our lifetime. I'm pretty optimistic that, you know, we'll all get through this and we'll come out the other side stronger and, you know, change for the better. And so I actually think within the real estate industry, you know, we have a real opportunity here to sort of rethink how we do things. And I think that, you know, we, we can play a great role in transforming and shaping the built environment and, you know, even our society for the better. So I think to 2021 could be the start of that, and it could be a new beginning for all of us. I mean, I sound fairly optimistic, which has probably surprised myself, but really I think that 
this lockdown period has given us all a real opportunity to sort of pause, rethink, you know, and think about how we're going to create and do things for the better. Well, I share your optimism, Joanna, and um, looking forward to a, a fruitful 2021 in, in, for everyone in the industry and, and looking forward to putting the pandemic behind us, hopefully yeah. sometime in, in, in next year, um, if not before. But um, I want to move into our quick fire round and just a okay. couple of quick questions. Uh, hopefully, yeah. maybe you feel free to answer in Spanish if you want. <laughs> but um, just kidding. Don't. Please, <laughs> please keep on English. But um, yeah. your uh, first question for you is, is really mm -hmm. related to our industry. Who inspires you? How quick do you want me to be? Because I'm generally not known for my quickness, but I'll try. <laughs> um, Okay, I would say that the person that I really, really have been inspired by for a long, long time is um, the city's architect, Jan Gale. I don't know if you know him, but I've long been a fan of his. In fact, you know, I think there are so many exciting, interesting architects out there in our industry at the moment. But, you know, if you want to look him up, you know, he's written a, a pretty major book called Cities for People. And, you cities know, for and people. Okay. cities for people and, you know, a hugely inspiring short film called The Human Scale. So his his sort of thinking really and mindset is that, um, you know, we, we, we really it's very, very simple. We need to design cities for people because amazingly, a lot of our cities right across the world were not designed for people. They were designed for traffic. They were designed for cars. Um, you know, and um, so th this is why he said he talks about the human scale, but he's actually transformed a lot of cities across the world, right from Times Square in New York to Mayfair in London, right through to, you know, Wellington in New Zealand after the earthquake. So hugely inspiring architect. And, you know, I, on that sort of note, another architect is um, I'm hugely inspired by Ken Shuttleworth and his team at Make Architects in London. They've also designed some of these landmark buildings, you know, right across the world, including in London. London Wall is one that I can think of, you know, that uh, is occupied by Schroders. But they're, they're very much into the placemaking, the public realm and creating uh, spaces for people and communities and that sort of thing. So I'm really into that. Um I'm also inspired by some amazing women in our industry. <laughs> uh, of course. So, yeah, please so I'm please share. Yeah, so I'm going to give a shout out to to some of them, if you don't mind. Please do. Um, my, my friends, Maria Wiedner and Anouk Khan, who come from a group called Real Estate Women in the UK or RE Women, um, and they support and empower women in the real estate industry. They provide training, courses, you know, coaching and this sort of thing. So I find them hugely inspiring. Um, and also there's a lady called Andrea Carpenter from um, an organization she set up called Women Talk Real Estate. And she founded this organization a couple of years ago. And this is to, to find and promote female speakers or panelists, you know, at conferences and seminars. And this because one of the things in our industry is, you know, even though uh, we've come an awful long way, we're still not as diverse as we'd like to be. So you know, she's another pioneer, I'd say, in that respect, sort of empowering more women to get up there and speak at conferences and big events and things. Um, and then finally, I will try and be quick. Um, there's also some real female sustainability pioneers as well. So just to mention a few, uh, Abigail Dean, head of sustainability in Nuveen, Nina Reed from M&G. And finally, um, I really, really admire this lady, um, lady called Nikki 
Nikki Greenberg, the prop tech oh, yeah. guru. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I follow her blogs and I think she's absolutely fantastic what she's doing as well. So there's some amazing women in our industry. <laughs> that, is, that is amazing. Nick, Nikki's impressive. And, and it sounds like uh, you've mentioned a few names that I don't know. So um, actually, if, if you wouldn't mind, um, if you could share this with me, um, just drop me an email. I'll put these yeah. in the show notes for everybody to be able to click and go find out who all these yeah. amazing people are. I'm a big fan of, yeah. of diversity and inclusivity. So um, I think I think the future of of work in general is is inclusive. So it should be at least. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I'm all for it. <laughs> so okay. Well, you might have alluded to some to this next answer. I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> what what sort of podcast or media do you consume to stay up to date on the latest trends in our sector? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I consume all the traditional media like EGI. Um, and actually, Samantha McClary, the, the editor of um, EG, is brilliant. She has some amaz amazing podcasts. Um, you know, I don't know if you've listened to them, but she's brilliant. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was on one of her podcasts once. Oh, OK. But, there but you even, go. Better, even better, <laughs> she came on this podcast uh, in season oh. two. I believe it was episode two or no, episode one, the first episode of season two. Oh, I must check that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and obviously, I read all the major journals like Property Week and IP Real Assets, um, you know, as well as things like the FT and The Economist. But but actually, you know, I I regularly read, uh, you know, draw Poleg's blogs and also your good friend, Anthony Slumbers. Oh, yeah. Um, so he writes some absolutely amazing blogs and also, you know, he's got some great podcasts. So, you know, I'm a researcher, so I just consume everything, you know, and, you know, and soak it all in like a sponge. <laughs> I, I knew you would have a list to share with you, uh, considering yeah. what you do. So I wanted yeah. to ask you that. Um, okay, well, this next one is going to be slightly different. Um, and it's very, very light and not industry related. I don't think it might be, depending on your answer. But um, <laughs> what is your favorite holiday destination? You know, I would love to go on holiday right now. I really would, you know, and especially in this sweltering heat in the UK. Um, I'd love to go abroad, but um, this is hard to pick. But I think if I had to pick one pure holiday destination, it would be Antigua. Um, I've been there lots of times. In fact, I've been to the Caribbean several times. But, you know, with, with 365 beaches, one for every day of the year, you know, stunning sunsets and rum punches on demand, you know, What's why would not you leave? What's not to like, exactly. Uh, that's why I've never been, because I'd never come back. <laughs> exactly. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That is that is so good. Uh, I, I love a beach holiday for sure. And um, I'm looking forward to – I'm actually going on one uh, to South France soon. So I'm going to – Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Sub subject to any sort of lockdown yeah. measures that happen. But, um, yeah. well, well, Joanna, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Oh, no problem. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Of course. Now, be sure to connect with Joanna on LinkedIn or she's also on Twitter at Joe. That's J-O-T-U-R-N-E-R -E prop one. So that's Joe Turner prop one on Twitter. And that's, uh, right. Thank you. that's right. Yep. So thank you, everyone, for joining in today. Until next time, take care of yourself. Yeah. Thank you, Callum. Thank you, everyone, too. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. 
This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.